From the moon, planet Earth is a beautiful sphere of blues, greens and swirling white clouds. It is a seemingly peaceful composition that holds within it everything, quite literally everything, all the people, places and stories of our existence. How can we decipher all those experiences, all those elements that distinguish us as human beings and how do we interpret the greatness of the natural world, the effects of climate change and above all how everything is interconnected? If you want to understand what's happening to cities, there is nothing better than to actually see the lights on the surface of the earth. So thinking about the Netherlands and light pollution, lights using the greenhouses, for example, produce four times more light than street lights. And almost half of uh, the light emitted in the Netherlands comes from greenhouses. Triennale Milano, Italy's foremost institution for design and contemporary culture, will be hosting its 23rd international exhibition next year in 2022. It is entitled Unknown Unknowns, and so this podcast will attempt to tackle some of these vast questions, seeking perspectives rather than answers, our metaphorical vantage point, giving us some distance and hopefully some clarity, all from the moon. Daily life today feels like an impending tsunami. Like, you know, something is happening, we can all feel it. We're all expecting something to happen, right? Using the tools and brains from the worlds of culture, design, science, philosophy, medicine and more besides, we'll be taking you on a journey through time, space and knowledge with me, David Pleasant. In episode four of From the Moon, we will continue to observe the world, this time seeing the surface of the planet as it faces away from the sun. The darkness allows us to see the sparkling lights of cities, of industry and of infrastructure. Virtually all human activity since the invention of electricity scarcely 150 years ago is lit up for us. As people down there on Earth switch on, consume and eventually sleep, all the millions of individual lights of the streets and cities which they inhabit merge to create a radiating map of the world. Despite the many areas of darkness that we can see, and we'll discuss these later in the show, for the moment we could use this vision to look at the state of the world's cities, how they are growing and the main challenges they face. Ricky Burdett is Professor of Urban Studies at the London School of Economics and Political Science and the Director of LSE Cities and the Urban Age Project. Ricky began by describing the view of the world at night from his perspective. Well, it's the most wonderful view down there. And it actually, it's the dream of a researcher to be on the moon and look at Earth. Because... um, If you want to understand what's happening to cities, there is nothing better than to actually see the lights on the surface of the Earth as the Earth turns or as the moon turns around Earth. And the first thing you see is that there's a great difference in where the lights are shining. And in other words, if I were to describe a world map to you, what we're looking at now from the studio, you would see uh, an intensity of heat, of light, in some parts. You would see, um, when we are over Europe, uh, a very, very dense network of uh, lights with some 
intensities around London, in fact, a uh, city I might be in if I weren't on the moon. Um, Holland, the three major cities in the Randstad. Uh, then you would see not very much until you get to Paris, and there's a hot spot there. Not very much at all in Spain until you suddenly see Madrid. And then an arc of light going all the way from Turin across Milan, northern Italy to um, Venice. Now, if you then turn to the other parts of the world, you begin to see um, darkness over much of Africa until you get to sub-Saharan Africa, and then some very intense glimmers around mega cities like Lagos, parts of South Africa, etc. But when you move further east, you then see an extraordinary concentration of dense lighting around India, around Bangladesh, and of course, the Pacific Rim in the east part of China. Same in Tokyo, and then down as you go towards Indonesia until you sort of hit Singapore. Again, great intensity. So what does this tell us? It tells us that there is a concentration of cities, but it's very unequal across the surface of the earth. It's not all the same. And some of these cities, particularly the ones in Africa and in Asia, are growing very, very fast indeed. Every minute and a half, you and I are talking. One more person has moved into Dhaka in Bangladesh, into Delhi, into um, Lagos or into Kinshasa, African cities. With Imagine what consequences for housing, for hospitals, for roads, for electricity, for support. While other parts of the world, for example, the former Eastern Europe, is a bit dark. In fact, some of them have become darker. Parts of Russia, parts of the Rust Belt of the United States, where jobs have been lost, are actually shrinking. They're going the other way. So what we would see from your uh, observatory is the fact that not only are cities not static, if we fast forward to 30 years, it would be 75% of the world's populations would be in these glimmering hotspots, let's call it that, when now they're about 55%, but that there would be more and more, in fact, 2.5 billion more people would have moved into cities by 2050. So you've brought me to my next question, and that is really the reality of the continuing growth of cities, um, how crucial they are to ensure, in ensuring any kind of effective change in terms of the future of our planet. You might say, and you've been telling us this message, uh, this in detailed information and research um, for, for quite some time, and you might say that that is widely understood, although I, I don't think we should take this fact for granted. But what reasons might we have to, to be pessimistic, to, to despair? And also what glimmers of uh, not only electricity, but of, of hope do you uh, see? Actually, for the, for the urbanists, to answer this question of where is their uh, hope uh, and where is their despair is quite easy. Because where you see the cities sprawling horizontally without any limits, the, one of the books I've written is called The Endless City. You literally don't know where the, 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 the skin ends, so to speak, of the city itself. Those are uh, areas, and there are many, unfortunately, across the world. Those are urban areas, metropolitan regions, 
uh, where one has to despair because uh, effectively what's happening, uh, and this is certainly the case in some cities in Latin America, some cities in India, um, and uh, a few few cities in Africa, but they haven't grown that far yet, uh, they are extending three or four or five times faster outwards with often one or two-story informal huts rather than planned and well-organized cities. The other end of the scale, the hope side, is instead to zoom in on places, let's say, in the Far East, Hong Kong, Seoul, Singapore, uh, but also uh, moving over Europe, certainly many of the central northern European cities, including um, uh, Athens, Paris, Barcelona, where the density of the population, the fact that they're actually close together, means a couple of very, very important things. One is that the use of land is reduced. The land take is reduced. This has enormous environmental consequences. The more a city sprawls, the more you need energy of whatever sort, whether it's fossil fuel or non, to get from A to B. And usually A to B is the journey for jobs. And cities are going to continue growing uh, as long as they um, provide opportunities for people to improve their life through jobs, obviously through education and through better services. The reason for hope in the denser cities is that services are much more efficient. Just think of a bus or a tram or, a, or an underground system. If you have enough people around to serve, they pay, literally pay for themselves. They're more efficient. You need the critical mass of people there. But the same applies to a school, the same applies to a university, and the same obviously applies to health services, which we've seen at this moment in time as the world has had to deal with the pandemic. So there's a social advantage of bringing people together as long as they're well-planned and well-organized. Um, and there is a significant disadvantage in terms of the environmental footprint of cities that go on forever. The sad thing is that the majority of cities that are growing fast today are going the wrong way. So clearly density is a, is a big issue. Um, and in your assessment um, over this last year, what have you what have you kind of uh, observed in terms of how cities have coped during the pandemic? The pandemic has actually telescoped some of the issues that have been bubbling along under the surface for some time. I frankly don't feel at the moment, as we come to the end of 2020, that in a year's time, we're going to have the, the world in a completely different way or the urban world in a completely different way. And when it comes to the question of density, it is interesting how right at the beginning, if we think of the initial spread of the disease, by the way, a spread that was completely uh, city-based because it was airports linking airports. It was Wuhan flights to Los Angeles or to Rome that actually caused the initial uh, spread. So the interlinkedness of cities has, is good in terms of uh, the transfer of ideas, money, and, and goods, but bad when it comes to other issues like the spreading of a disease. The cities that brought people together were thought to be, of course, 
a problem, density. And you had uh, people leaving New York if they could afford it. But it's very interesting how Seoul, Singapore in particular, and other Asian high-density cities were actually able to deal with the pandemic much more efficiently than other parts, other cities in the world. So density in and of itself actually turned into an asset, partly because of closer control mechanisms. These are different countries with different political regimes, which cultural regimes, I might call them, operate in a different way. But the point that has been, you have made is that actually clo- being close to a hospital so that you can get some there quickly and deal with them and put them on a ventilator as soon as they're ill has made an enormous difference in terms of saving lives. But there's another aspect which needs to be taken into account when we talk about density. Density is just about the numbers of people that live within a square kilometer. But there are different ways of living that density. Richard Florida, for example, has been talking about overcrowding as being the issue rather than density itself. So when you look at New York City, just one of many examples, it's not the densest areas around Central Park, you know, 20, 30-story buildings right next to each other, cheek by jowl, that actually suffered most from the spread of the disease and then actually death rates. It's those areas outside, uh, more the fringes, the, the, the Bronx, Queens, and other areas which actually have high concentrations of people of different ethnicities, as it happened, who have different lifestyles and different attitudes to coming together or not, and nearly all of them more deprived. So you have the double negative whammy of uh, these uh, communities living in overcrowded environments rather than dense environments and without access to the services that we're talking about. So density, as ever, in my view, if well managed, is part of the solution and not part of the problem. That was Ricky Burdett, who is Professor of Urban Studies at the London School of Economics and Political Science. Seeing the surface of the earth by night can tell us a great deal. As it rapidly changes, we can compare this view as time progresses to help us understand how cities are growing and to some extent how they might be developing. But as we'll find out on this episode, this nighttime vision of the world only tells part of the picture, not least by ignoring the vast areas of dark we see, the oceans, wildernesses, and in some cases underdeveloped but inhabited parts of the earth that remain largely off the grid and seemingly in the dark. We could also consider what might be the effect of all this electricity shining out from our cities. Excessive artificial light is known as light pollution and is often a problem in urban areas. According to the European Space Agency, many meteor showers have gone unnoticed by urban populations and the average city dweller can make out very few stars and constellations in the synthetic glow. Our next guest is going to help us at least begin to look into the darkness. Angela Rui is an Italian curator and researcher based between Milan and Rotterdam, working in design theory and criticism. Angela spoke to me about the intense light that we can see shining from the Netherlands by night and also about some of the opportunities that might lie in the better understanding of darkness. 
Angela Rui, thank you for joining us on this episode of From the Moon. Um, Today, we are looking into darkness, into the things we can't see, um, or rather what what uh, what is seen from our point of view here on the moon. Um, we're looking at planet Earth, and we can obviously see uh, a lot of cities uh, that shine brightly um, with all the electricity, all the consumption that they are taking part in. But there's a lot of dark areas as well. And I, with you today, I'd like to explore those dark areas, if we can. Um, you actually did precisely that in in a show uh, in 2019 um, called I See That I See What You Don't See, if I've said that right. You have to correct me. Um, Can you first of all tell us about that show uh, uh, that was uh, put on by the Netherlands for the Triennale? Yes. Hi, David, and thank you for inviting me uh, on the moon. And yes, of course. So, I have been one of the curators for the Dutch Pavilion um, the last year at the Triennale, the 22nd Triennale di Milano. And, the, and, the, and this project, which is titled exactly as you said, I see that I see what you don't see. So I said um, it right. It was quite difficult. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, actually, then maybe we can talk a little bit uh, about the title itself. But anyhow, it took the um, complex multi-species relationship between light and dark, but also between seeing and not seeing as a sort of starting point for an exploration of their conflicting effects on humans, but also on, on the earth and other organisms. So maybe just to mention um, why we decided to... Um, take the topic as the, you know, at the topic of, of the participation, national participation. So thinking about the Netherlands um, and light pollution, hmm? lights used in the greenhouses, for example, produce four times more light than street lights. And almost half of uh, the light emitted in the Netherlands comes from greenhouses. So maybe from our position, when we're looking down on Earth, the Netherlands is a really bright spot. So if, if we picture kind of Europe, uh, where the Netherlands sits, it's it's surrounded by very populated areas, but the Netherlands itself has all this intensive uh, industrial agriculture. Um, basically, the whole country is one big light-emitting uh, diode. It's like one big LED, would you say? Exactly, yes. But also at the same time, when we were studying and looking at data, we also noticed that, for example, a 40% of uh, all invertebrates and 30% of all vertebrates are nocturnal species. And they are disappearing, of course. And um, we don't know about them disappearing because we don't see them. So it all started to become like, even like, a game um, that, or anyway, a way of thinking around this idea of light, but also of darkness as something that is related with knowledge. So um, coming back to the title, right? I see, I see what you don't see. So maybe this is a, another way of intending the title. And it was also an occasion to find a discursive place from where being able to change our observation point. And so the title was stolen actually from a beautiful speech uh, that Dr. Van der Heyden 
who was a Dutch comparative physiologist, a, um, wrote like at the at the end of the 70s describing the influence of artificial light on the animal behavior. So it's like to say that who is saying, I see that I see that you don't see is not a person, is an animal, right? So it's like taking the point of view of another you know, being is also a way of changing your position and look at our species from you know, a different perspective. With that in mind, that intriguing title, I See That I See What You Don't See, begins to make a little more sense. For Angela Rui, this is a call for the direct observation of nature outside of a human-centred vision, therefore seeing that which is unseen. It also explains the need to change the ways in which we see to help us understand our surroundings. With the increasing presence of all that is artificial and man-made at night, we humans are becoming influenced by this environment, just like those nocturnal species which Angela mentioned earlier. Can, you, can we kind of go into the darkness now a little bit? In many ways, you're talking about what we can see or the fact that um, humans or or animals uh, are illuminated in some way. But I think that the reverse of that is the darkness and what we're not seeing. And I know that you you have some ideas on exploring the potential and possibility of darkness as well, the, the kind of unknown elements. Maybe talk me through that a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So we can say that darkness can be seen as, of course, like a physical you know, um, domain, right? So like the opposite of, of, of light, for example, but it has also conceptual, a uh, conceptual, um, you know, uh, side in a way. So it's about what we don't know, right? But what we don't know sometimes is related uh, with what we don't see. And of course, uh, darkness can also be seen as a lack of something, right? But also as a, as a potential, because of course, it's a metaphor of what we see, don't know, and um, a way of looking at what we don't see yet. It means like to be completely free of, you know, facing the unknown eh? a, um, from also a very naive perspective at the beginning. And also we try to understand how our disciplines can face such a, you know, such a topic, right? We are not philosophers, we are not scientists, we are not biologists, we are not oceanographers. But what we have to do is to create bonds between all these disciplines. For Angela, this darkness that we are trying to delve into is a metaphor for the unknown. It is everything we don't understand, or maybe cannot understand. And as she just touched on there, something this huge cannot possibly be tackled by one person or one discipline even. With that desire to at least attempt to understand the unknown, in the summer of 2020, design theorist Angela, philosopher Emanuele Cocha, art critic Paolo Nicolin and Luca Trevisani, an artist, got together and created a manifesto of sorts and called it the School of Unstable Knowledge. And we did so to begin a dialogue based on the fact that we ignore much more than what we know, right? So basically, we were thinking about the need we have of a new picture of the world, not just because of the digital revolution has transformed reality, 
but also because it has allowed us to understand that a very large par part of um, you know, our universe remains unknown, like the ocean, the deep sea, the outer space, uh, but also matter itself and its behavior remain completely unknown to us, right? So Angela, ever inspired to jump into the dark, metaphorically at least, has turned her attention to the oceans. Those vast areas that, from our perspective on the moon, looking down at planet Earth, might appear totally dark. Dark by night, and in the deep ocean, dark by day too. These places are sometimes called the last frontiers on Earth. It is estimated that we only know about 5% of the area of the Earth covered by oceans. As Angela explains, our understanding is very Earth or Terra-centric. We know that, that 5% is also applied to what we know about the ocean and at large, right? And we have you know, now, you know, as you can see everywhere, there is an attention on the deep sea as the last frontier not only for knowledge, um, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. and, but also in this idea and will and uh, need to change you know, the paradigm of the discipline itself, if you look at the sea, if you look at the oceans, you can't apply the same rules that you normally apply in a from a terracentric you know, perspective or space. Terracentric, I like that word, never heard that. So you have a terracentric and an ocean-centric. Yes, exactly. So the engagement with a non-terracentric space poses a challenge for design research, right? So how do you destabilize the, the prevalent words of thinking with other words of thinking? Because the ocean forces us to think differently, you know? It, it is a medium in which everything flows and it is interconnected. A, um, but also, it is transformative. You can't fix it, right? Tides, waves, currents never stops, and they travel. But also, like the classic ways of describing a space, for example, um, like, you know, again, a, from gravity, for example, or the way we move, a, uh, the way we explore space is more related with the, you know, with factors that normally are uh, thought and designed to be terracentric. But this is not valid anymore when we, we approach such a place like the ocean, right? So um, with, the, with the Design Academy in Endoven, I, there I'm running a class within the Geodesign Master and, and the class is called Pedagogies of the Sea, again, right? So what can we learn from the sea that can become transformative for our discipline as well? That was design theorist and curator Angela Rui there reminding us of the need to collaborate if we are going to at least attempt to understand more of the darkness that we see in the world at night. From the darkness of vast oceans back to land and to another city, whose lights we can see shining at night. This nighttime view of the Earth gives us a vivid sense of the shape and formation of how humans inhabit the Earth today. To try and interpret what we see, next we have someone who devotes his career to the research and practical considerations of how we inhabit the city. Yoni Babocci is Senior Advisor in Urban Planning for the Municipality of Tirana, the capital of Albania. 
Yoni and I discussed the limitations of observing the shape of cities from above and also explored how and when the growth of cities might end. Yoni Babochi, thank you very much for joining me on From the Moon. Uh, in this episode, uh, we are looking down from the moon at planet Earth uh, at nighttime in the dark, seeing the cities uh, that we inhabit uh, by night. And one of the first things that, that strikes us is the shape of cities, how they they occupy the territory uh, of, of, of the land. Um, they hug highways, coasts, uh, they grow, uh, they, they form all sorts of extraordinary shapes. Firstly, I want to ask you, as, as, a, as a planner, um, how do you interpret those, those shapes, the shapes of the city? And, and, and can, you, can you explain to me what you see uh, from your point of view? Uh, hey, David, thank you very much for having me here. It's a pleasure to be talking to you. Uh, it's such an interesting question. It's such an interesting perspective to think about this topic from, from the moon, as you say, to look at these cities from the moon. And I think that the, the first thing that comes to mind is the organic shape that, uh, that these cities have. Despite the attempt by us as planners or as humans to, to give them very sort of uh, Euclidean shapes, very straight lines. And despite that, looking at them from the moon, that is sort of missed. You don't really see that. I think it's, it, it illustrates how authority, in a way, tries, tries to make these systems much more legible than they, they really are. It simplifies them, uh, and therefore it really removes the context, the, the political structures, the the you know the the administrative culture of certain of certain cities and you don't really see that when you when you zoom out so in a way from my perspective from my profession i would ask what is the the purpose of zooming out so what do we actually find out by zooming out in terms of planning a city because especially at night you know we're missing the clubs we're missing the restaurants we're just looking at the lights uh, at whatever is visible so one of our main I think duties is to actually look at cities from a section rather than from plan. So like look at them uh, in a, in a, with another dimension in mind, uh, with all the interactions that happen at the ground floor, which are not visible from, from space. So there's a there's a dichotomy there. We might we might think of a city. Um, well, if we're if we're looking at it from the moon, say uh, it, it's uh, it looks uh, very large uh, or uniform, planned. Uh, uh, but but actually, it's it could be something inc incredibly different on the ground. Also, there's questions of development versus uh, underdevelopment and so on. Is that is that kind of what you're saying? We can't tell what what the city or or planners can't really predetermine. What, how a city will function just by the shape of it. Um, one thinks of of kind of twentieth century, early twentieth century plan plans of cities on grids, on on radial uh, forms, and so on. That that is it futile to think of cities by their shape. I think that uh, the the challenge there is to to think of cities, uh, of course, by looking at the shape, but then the interventions that we make should should be in perspective. Meaning that if a city like the one that you're, right, you're in right now is uh, two or 3,000 years old, uh, it's impossible and it's futile to try and sort of uh, change this pattern, patterns which have formed and have grown uh, in hundreds of generations. Uh, and it's futile to think that we're better and we sort of, we know better than, than uh, 30 or 40 or 100 other people before us. So I think uh, it, takes, it takes a lot of courage in a way to to 
to be humble in uh, in in these exercises, which are often you know uh, directed by visions, by these big ideas, which are interesting. They're challenging. I think you know when you talk about looking at the city from the moon, when you talk about people wanting to go to Mars, I mean this is what drives humanity forward. Uh, but then it's also important to to look at how can that be implemented at the small scale. And uh, uh, further to that, I want to kind of investigate, because I think what we're really getting at is the gr- the element of growth of cities. And that's something that by night is so visible. So if you compare uh, what what we're seeing right now, what, what we're imagining to say tw- 10, 20 years previously, we see that the cities have grown, that the light has, has expanded. Um, can we talk about that notion of of growth um, and and you know how how do we mark or, or kind of monitor that that growth? Yeah, I mean, I think definitely it's where it's driving it. I mean, uh, in the next thirty years, we expect two and a half billion people to move into cities, so that growth will only get bigger. And one thing about this kind of growth, which is often termed super exponential growth is that the future uh, feels like it's coming at you faster all the time. Because the more you grow, the faster you're growing. So it's accelerating at every stage of growth. And that's why, in a way, daily life today feels like an impending tsunami. Like, you know, something is happening. We can all feel it. We can all, we're all expecting something to happen, right? Uh, and we don't know what it is. And this kind of growth also, I think, extremely important to notice and to note this is the, the last time we'll have to deal with it in terms of urban growth. So once these two and a half billion people move into cities, uh, this won't be a problem anymore for humanity because we're not growing anymore once we move to cities. Therefore, this is like a one-off test. If we fail this, we fail this forever. If we are able to make it, if we're able to, to, to you know, resist the environmental concerns, the energy constraints, and then make this transition possible, then I think we have passed the test. And then the next 50 years will be much easier because it, it will be a, a, a century of improving rather than of, of changing in a way. Um, I want to go back at, uh, to that notion of real life uh, in the city on the ground level. Um, it's all very well us looking from the moon thousands of, of, of miles up above above the cities, but I want to I want to turn our attention back to the street level and to maybe some examples of um, of, of how in planning and and in intervening interventions in in our cities can can really change the lives um, of, of residents and maybe we could get super local now hyper local and we can talk about where you are and where you've been working to great success uh, in Tirana in, in Albania so i mean yeah we have tried to to in a way implement some of these ideas of course in a much simpler much smaller scale so our driving sort of mantra has been how can we change the city through a series of a large set of very small interventions of course, coupled with some big projects, which are the ones that sort of uh, sell the vision, right? But the real change, however, is happening at the small scale. So it's happening at the 50-plus playgrounds that we have built in the city, at the 20-plus schools that we are currently constructing. And this all is attempting at building, at increasing the number of interactions, at improving communities around this, this infrastructure, which at the end, I think, 
is you know uh and i i'll maybe go on on off on a on sort of a, on a segment here but uh we have in tehran a lot of these small scale sort of grocer shops we don't have the big supermarkets we do have them as well and they're becoming bigger and bigger but we still ha- still have hundreds of small scale grocers at every corner of the city and they represent to me the multiple points of failure in a system so we're not sort of uh stuck on one point of failure we have multiples uh what happened with the pandemic hit uh the factory of the world china decided to lock itself down because it needed these products for itself which makes perfect sense every country would have done it right we you had the us shipping ppe from italy to 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 the states so i think that that really illustrated how fragile we are and how we are really not prepared for what might be coming but you say failure um so the, the grocery shops were were failures in what respect no i think that they represent multiple points of failure so we don't have just a single one like the supermarket we have like 50 different villagers who are sort of growing their small scale uh farms and then who're selling their produce to the city so when the big scale supermarket failed because of the pandemic and there were no eggs coming in from italy anymore through our one of the the italian chains here we had 50 other villagers who brought eggs from their own sort of uh, small farms so i think this idea of and you know individually each of these farmers is very fragile but in the system of the city they create what talib calls anti fragility so we are basically anti fragile these kind of sort of uh, these kind of shocks actually help the city grow and help the city sort of perform better in a way so that fragility that uh, perceived fragility is actually a strength is what you're saying that that's It, it, as long it, as yes as long as as it's it it comes in multiples so as long as there's a lot of fragility then the whole system is itself is is anti-fragile if however you might have one very very strong and we're very very powerful institution in a supermarket or in a country which produces everything and that one fails which is what happened in the pandemic then you're basically screwed almost like it's it it, it reminds me of almost um, immunity it's like building an in, immunity to to uh, a virus or to right. a, a a failure of some sort so that that's super interesting yeah i mean herd immunity in a way is the is the failure of a lot of individuals which then help the system you know be safe from from future infection that's a notion of growth um can you tell me a little bit more about that process and where you know the the kind of trajectory of that So I think that one interesting concept in in this super exponential growth also it's that basically when you look at the graphs when you look at the graphs of GDP of world population uh of these sort of uh from the moon perspective data of earth and cities it looks a lot like approaching like it's approaching a phase transition and by that I mean water is water if it gets too cold it doesn't sort of slowly transition to becoming ice but at a certain point when it hits 0 degrees it just becomes ice and the same thing happens with with a lot of other systems in nature so i think that the theory in a way illustrates that a collapse is imminent and it's coming in practice we don't know what the event might be right is it a global catastrophe probably like a breakdown of the economy is it a nuclear disaster is it a hostile ai we don't know but i think that uh it's very very important to think about growth in these terms if you look at those graphs and we compare our very complex system 
with other complex systems in nature, which go through these things all the time, uh, we don't care because like they don't really sort of impact us that much. But it's the same thing we see with climate change, with energy consumption, with GDP, with world population. We have to deal with these problems. Otherwise, we will not be prepared just like, just like we weren't with the pandemic just a year ago. We won't be prepared when these problems come. Thank you to Yoni Babocci there, who is Senior Advisor in Urban Planning for the Municipality of Tirana. So we continue our slow orbit of the Earth by night, passing interconnected cities far below that seem to twinkle like decorations. Earlier, Ricky Burdett navigated us away from where he was in Europe and the bright clusters of cities found there towards Asia, where more cities bigger and still growing, can be seen to glow in the night. Our next guest's career, starting in China and taking him to Europe and North America, gives him a truly global perspective. In episode two of From the Moon, curator and artistic director of the Maxi Museum in Rome, Hanru Hu, explained what was the very political nature of his work when we were trying to assess some of the world's many divisions. This time, Hanru and I turned our attention to the nighttime, and it quickly became apparent that this topic too, like so often when observing the planet from a cultural perspective, is also very political. Well, I think this is an absolutely amazing, fantastic uh, theme to talk about. You know, uh, what can we uh, see from the moon? Actually, I would love to be sitting in this space X and going up the sky at this moment and watch. <laughs> of course, you know, one of the legendary uh, saying is that, um, you know, looking from the moon uh, on Earth, there's only one thing visible, which is the Great War, right, of China. That was the legend. Hanru, of course, is referring to the trope that the only man-made structure on the surface of the Earth visible from the moon is the Great Wall of China. Whether this was ever true or not is debatable, and anyway, as we have observed already on this episode, our cities, those ultimate expressions of human creation, are certainly very visible by night. Now Hanru turns his attention to Hong Kong and the simmering August of 2019, as the Asian city was experiencing widespread protests against the erosion of this former British colony's democratic freedoms. Much of this political expression was happening by night, describes Hanru. The last image that I can imagine was the people uh, a year ago in Hong Kong last summer that uh, during the protest time, um, and young, old, middle-aged, kids, all people uh, um, are holding their hands across the city and going up to the, the peak of the highest hill in Hong Kong to light up with their handphones or candles to light up um, a, a human chain that across this, the city that to build a new um, Great Wall against that Great Wall. And definitely, I think we are all inspired being curator, being artist, being you know, designer, architecture, and writers, and so on. Inspired by events like this that uh, change fundamentally our perception of 
of course, the landscape, the cities, and also how we function as, you know, creative people. So, so that's the kind of, I mean, obviously, that the, the inspiring nature of the night of darkness. Um, I guess it's because of the sort of very direct intervention you can have on the night. It's kind of immediately so visible. It stands uh, out so so much more. Absolutely. I think being a curator, one of the you know the luckiest thing that I have experienced is to be able to do a few projects um, during the night in different parts of the world. The more Han Ru Hu and I spoke, the more it became apparent that much of his work and involvement in the cultural sphere seemed to have taken place under the cover of darkness at night. Not least Han Ru's early activist work, taking part in secret underground gatherings and disseminating information relating to contemporary art in late 1980s China. The secret actions that we did, um, you know, in different times in the in the eighties in China, and being a, a kind of a guerrilla-like. Uh, was that uh, very much in the night? Uh, yeah, a lot of things happening at night because uh, you can hide. Because, yeah, because nobody can see you, and already at the time there was was not so much light as today in Chinese cities, and then you can also hiding, uh, be hiding yourself uh, easier. In a in a way that you know you have, in fact, more freedom in the in the dark. So very early on in his career, Hanru found that far from being a time when things come to a stop and stillness ensues, the night, with its darkness, its capacity to shelter and obscure, created a certain freedom, a liberty that could not be found in the day. So that gave me a, uh, I think, a very deep kind of. Um, uh, uh, impression that remains as a driving force in terms of you know doing things in life and also as a curator. I think being a curator is not only to do good shows, but make actions that can you know make the shows make sense, and um, especially as a kind of critical um, uh, critical uh, proposal to how. Actually, an exhibition and artwork can help us to go a little bit further than what we usually do. Hanru speaks of the night as a platform that helps deconstruct the many rules and norms that define our everyday lives, as well as our cultural institutions. In 2004, Hanru was asked to be a director of one of the very first Nuit Blanche in Paris, which saw museums, galleries and other venues, large and small, all over the city, open their doors for the entire night on the first Saturday of October. Attracting hundreds of thousands of visitors to a curated programme of visual arts, performances and installations that took place from 8 in the evening over the next 12 hours, Nuit Blanche became a huge success and was copied in many other cities all over the world. So that gave us an incredible freedom to imagine and realise things that uh, probably uh, you would never do during the day. So um, my section uh, for that uh, event in 2004 was called uh, Needles at Midnight. Uh, needles, actually, are the needles that we use for acupuncture. 
targeting the city at precise points like acupuncture needles in the body, Hanru organised curated interventions such as Swiss artist Thomas Hirschhorn's piece entitled 24-Hour Foucault at the Palais de Tokyo, in which a different speaker was invited to talk every hour for 24 hours, something that Hanru describes as a nightclub of philosophy. Visitors were encouraged to come in, sit down and listen all through the night. Beyond cultural entertainment, argues Hanru, this piece was creating space for critical thinking. Nuit Blanche is not only a, a beautiful event providing very poetic um, uh, experience to people, but also make them uh, think the meaning of living in the city, being a citizen. At another targeted point in the city, Hanru's urban acupuncture needle was even more ambitious. The mounting of a hundred screens, each playing a short three-minute film, selected from some 8,000 videos submitted after an open call. Hanru was keen on non-artist participants. Applicants were asked not to include their CV. The only requirement was that the subject of the film be the night. Just before the age of YouTube and long before selfies and smartphones, Hanru was inspired by the use of homemade posters at student revolts in China and Europe in the 1960s and 70s. Here, once again, the night becomes a public platform. And that actually gives me a, a really a very important understanding of you know, what democracy could mean today in a time of uh, so-called new media. At the time, the new media was video, was not yet the, the online platforms and so on. But it's not very different from, you know, what we have today. Nearly two decades after that great nighttime cultural experiment that was Nuit Blanche in Paris, and starting in 2020 as part of measures to limit the spread of the coronavirus that was putting an enormous strain on health systems, many countries around the world decided to do the almost unthinkable, enact a curfew a ban on free movement in the night. Even the use of the word curfew came as a shock to many of us living in liberal, democratic societies. This word had become historic and unfamiliar. To end, I wanted to know what Hanru made of this new restricted night that has been seen during the pandemic. When you're blocked at home in the night, and and what happens is it seems it's quite normal to accept... uh, a kind of uh, confinement because it's the night, right? But during the day, when you're confined at home, you feel that you are living in the night. So it's almost like uh, the opposite to the new blanche is the it's like a dark uh, Nordic night, a Nordic day, right? During the during the winter. So, but that might be, you know, the two things. One, it's possible you surrender to this total confinement that you accept the logic of total security. Actually, the other day I rediscovered a text I wrote 15 years ago for uh, the Sydney Biennial catalog. It's called The Zone of Contamination because that show was, that project was, I mean, the the Biennale was titled uh, Zone of Contact. I said, you know, Zone of Contact is not enough. It's it's contamination, um, because that happened in the time when the SARS, the first SARS, started. I wrote about you know how much you know the SARS actually 
remind us uh, that we are a part of this natural exchange world, that we have to somehow face and accept and somehow also transform ourselves to embrace this contamination of virus, of you know, mutation uh, and different conditions, um, so we can generate new energy. But the typical way that human beings are facing, uh, uh, trying to face this so-called crisis is to, instead of embracing this possibility of being good and bad at the same time, we try to be good. We try to be safe. So we impose all kinds of security rules to basically turn, turn on the lights so the night doesn't exist anymore. So that, I think, is a huge question. I don't know if it's good or not, but I feel it's, at least for me, the price we paid is about giving up our fundamental freedom, which is the freedom in ourselves to be able to look into the moon without turning on the light. That was Hanru Hu there describing what could be called the dichotomy of light and dark, that is, the nighttime. Our observation of the world at night has shown us that there is much that we can see. For instance, the growing cities which we inhabit. But there is still much darkness that also tells its own stories. We have also discovered that far from being a time of no activity, there is a unique freedom that comes when night falls. And we have seen how visible that is from our imaginary position here on the moon. In the next episode, we turn the telescope away from Earth, looking at both distant galaxies and more closely at the host of our podcast, the moon. How do we interpret what we see in the night sky? And what does this interpretation of what is out there tell us about ourselves? We'll hear from astronaut Paolo Nespoli, astrophysicist Katie Mack, James Carpenter from the European Space Agency, choreographer, artist and author Ivana Muller, and Mia Feynman from the Metropolitan Museum of Art. This podcast was brought to you by Triennale Milano. It was written and presented by me, David Pleasant, and it was produced by the Triennale Milano team. Sound editing and design was by Alex Port Felix, and the theme music was created by John Arnold of Superdrama. Drama.